everyone. This is March Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, and I'd like to welcome you to my interview with Benjamin Studebaker. Hello, Benjamin. Thanks for joining me today. Hi. Thanks for having me. I'm really thrilled we were able to connect while you're on this side of the Atlantic. Yeah, me too. It's a relatively short window. Glad we made it work. Yeah, yeah, I know. Totally easier. So for everyone out there listening, Prose, Poetry, and Purpose is recorded in the studios of Voice of Vashon, broadcast at 11 a.m. every Saturday and Sunday on 101.9 FM KVSH. It's also available online 24-7 at voiceofvashon.org. Thank you for joining us, and now we're going to dive into the show. So Benjamin happens to be my very first guest blogger, and as I was mentioning earlier, I'm thrilled we were able to work this out while he was in the country. Benjamin, how about you give our listeners a sense of who you are, what you're doing with your life, what you like to blog about, and uh, you know, just basically set the scene for who you are. Well, I'm a PhD student at the University of Cambridge in England, but of course I'm not British. I come from the United States. I grew up in Valparaiso, Indiana, near Chicago. I got interested in politics when I was in third grade during the Gore-Bush election. I'm I'm 24, so I'm pretty young. I'm the young end for a millennial even. Um, I I got really interested in politics during Gore-Bush, and I've kind of stuck with it ever since then. And when I came through high school, I I wanted to study more politics and, and less everything else. (laughs) <laughs> and at British universities, they, they do that. They do a very focused degree program. So I decided to do undergrad at the University of Warwick. I came back to the States for my master's at University of Chicago. And now I'm back over there again at Cambridge for the Ph.D. And while I was at Warwick in undergrad, I, I started up this blog because I, I really wanted an excuse to write more. Mm-hmm. We're always reading and we're always talking about stuff, but... And you don't necessarily always get an opportunity to write in your own voice without it necessarily being judged by a professor. And I, I found it really fun to process the things that I was thinking about by writing about them on the Internet. And it kind of became, uh, it kind of took on a life of its own. It kind of generated an audience over time. I wrote a whole lot. I wrote very prolifically, especially in the first year. I wrote something like 200 posts, and, mm-hmm. and each one is about one to 2,000 words long, so mm-hmm. it's big. Uh, and over time, it kind of built up a following, and I had a post earlier this year that did almost a million, uh, a million hits, which is really amazing to me. Wow, so that is that. really amazing. Oh my gosh, Benjamin, I didn't realize it was that high. Yeah, when I started it out, I, I was lucky if 100 people read one of mine, and If you just keep it up and keep working at this kind of thing, eventually people do find it if it's good. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree. Yeah. It takes a while. It's it's one of those things that um, I'm not sure what your thoughts are about future publication, but for um, writers in general, um, it's oftentimes a surprise to realize you need to do more than just write the fabulous book or novel or whatever. You need to also actually develop an audience, and that takes time. Yes. So 200 posts in the first year, and how many years ago was this? Three, did you say? That would have been in 2012 when I was uh, between my second and third year of undergrad. I started on August 4th, 2012. <laughs> I still remember that. It's the blog's birthday. Oh, oh my gosh. Oh, I have a blog, and I don't think I remember. I'm a bad blog mama. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember the birthday. Wow. So um, now what brought you back to Chicago? Well, I, I, I'd been in, in Britain for three years because they do three-year undergraduate degrees instead of four. And I, I kind of started to wonder if maybe I'd kind of missed out on something, if I had you know, missed a, a particularly American form of, of college experience. Hmm. And I wanted to get a sense for university systems in both the U.K. and the U.S., so I have a good sense of where if I eventually get a job at a, at a university where I'd like to work and, and how different places operate. Mm-hmm. And that kind of brought me back to Chicago, and I did a, a one-year master's program there. And it was very interesting. I learned a lot, uh, not just about politics, but about university systems in different countries. 
Right. And you had the ability to be able to actually see more clearly because you'd been somewhere else. And so you could compare. Yeah. Yeah. And generally people have either spent their whole careers in one system or the other, or if they have come over, it's just for a semester. It's not for a full degree. Right. So it's hard to really get a sense. But I think that's one of the most valuable things I got out of my early career experience has been going to both countries and meeting people on both sides. Yeah, my um, my older younger brother, sort of awkward, I have two younger brothers and one of them is the older of the two, and um, he traveled to Russia for a semester, and um, and that really helped to inf- I mean, you know, inform his uh, – his perceptions, I think, of how schooling is done in, in the States. And, of course, he'd start off in one state, and then he went to Russia, and then he came back and went to another state. You know, one was a liberal school, one was in a conservative area. So I don't know, travel, I always think it's one of the best ways to meet ourselves as well as understand better where we came from. Yeah, it gives you a lot of perspective on your own culture and on other people's cultures and different ways of doing things, and it it gives you uh, a point of view from which to criticize when we're only in our own society thinking about our own uh, political system. It gets myopic, and it limits our ability to think broadly. Right, right. Actually, just real quick little sort of pop quiz, and we don't even have to delve deeply into it, but just while it's on the top of my my head here – if you were to, many people in America, I think, feel a certain level of frustration or distrust with politics in this country, and you've been to Britain and obviously have a pretty good sense of how the people of the UK, Britain, I never quite know what to call that country, how the people actually perceive their own government. Um, real quick, how would you compare those two? How do you think Americans and Britons view their government? Similar, different? a lot of similarities between uh, the the level of institutional skepticism that we have here and in Britain and in Europe. Since 2008, economic conditions have been bad. People haven't been doing well. And this has produced a lack of confidence in media, in uh, politics, in the political parties, in all aspects of the establishment order. Mm-hmm. in a lot of countries, and we, we saw that with the Brexit vote where they rejected the European Union. Mm-hmm. We're seeing this in uh, a lot of countries in Europe have far-right nationalist political parties that are getting more popular, and some far-left as well, mm-hmm. uh, stuff like National Front in France or Alternative for Germany in Germany, uh, UKIP in, in Britain. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of these anti-establishment political movements all over the world, and yeah, I think that they, they have a lot in common with what we see here. All right. So, yeah, a lot of times, I mean, Americans, it, it's funny because um, I am currently in the process of working to take my family to Denmark for a number of years. Uh, we'll keep the house here on the island. We'll come back is the plan. But, um, you know, I keep saying to the kids how important it is to get out of this country so that you can see it more clearly and understand it better. But also, um, it's so hard to go to another country when you grow up in America. It's huge. You've got to drive for many, many days. Whereas when I was um, in Denmark for two weeks doing an exploration trip there, it was a 20-minute ferry crossing, and now I'm next door in the next country, you know? So um, I think it's Americans tend to have more, like, as badly as maybe the people in China or a few other countries. There's just this... We talk about myopic. I mean, wow, you know, it's just really hard to see outside of yourself because it's just hard to get there. Yeah, it's hard to find people to talk to who come from other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many of them who, who you do talk to are immigrants who wanted to be in the United States and admired it for a long time. Right. You don't necessarily meet the people who are more critical and the people who have really different uh, worldviews completely. Or the people who really love how it's being done somewhere else. Yeah, yeah, the people who really love how it's being done somewhere else. Because they stay somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it was interesting. I met um, uh, a woman on the island and was chatting about um, my experience in Denmark, and she immediately sort of cast sort of a a negative viewpoint on it, even though she's 
she was born in Denmark, but around the age of four moved to the U.S. and I think has been here the rest of her life. That was what came out in the story. And yet it's almost like, you know, because her family had come here, they obviously must have been a family that wasn't so happy with the way things were. So she grew up with this negative view. And, and yet when I'm talking to people who are living in Denmark, well, in general, they're quite happy. In fact, they're the happiest people in the world, supposedly. So, um, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, oh. you, you, often, you often see that with uh, Americans because most of the people we meet who are from foreign backgrounds or immigrants, we tend to overestimate the extent to which other people love us. Mm-hmm. Because our immigrants in general are, are people who really are big Americanophiles or whatever the, the term you want to use. Mm-hmm. Now, that's actually a great point, as yeah. usual. That's why uh, first-generation immigrants have some of the lowest crime rates of anybody in the country because they're just so happy to be here as a group. Right. And then we're talking, and yes, I think that's absolutely the impression I've had, but also um, when, you know, the, the the ridiculous illusion that immigrants are coming into the country and then just sitting around sucking off of, you know, our social programs, um, when many of them arrive already with a job waiting for them. You know, people in America don't understand that usually you have to have, like, someone here in the country who's trying to help you get here, you know, and then you have to be able to prove that you're going to have a landing spot and you're going to, you know, you're not just going to show up and say, hi, can I have some free money, please? Yeah, and even with people who have come into the country through less well-regulated means, when they've done studies on what would happen if you normalized those people or you allowed more of them in, they find that those people over time will generate more government revenue than they will consume in benefit. Mm-hmm. Even people who are low skill, people who come from uh, the Latin American countries, it doesn't really make a difference. Immigration from an economic standpoint is always a win. Right, right. And yet how do we get those facts and figures into the minds of the media-saturated common person? Yeah, that's the thing because in in – in the media, if one immigrant commits a crime or a murder, that's going to get prime coverage. And all of the good cases, all of the people who integrate successfully and have really great lives, they're not news stories. Mm-hmm. So they don't show up. And we do have organizations that compile these statistics, put out the research, put out the data. But statistics aren't as interesting as individual murders or high-profile crimes and for that reason, they don't get the same level of media coverage. Well, maybe. I would say, actually, that those statistics can be presented in a fascinating way, just like human history can be taught in a fascinating way. But when you take the government that goes to a school and says, here's a curriculum you have to shove down the throats of your students, suddenly the history class becomes the worst class and everyone hates it unless you are one of the rare people who love history. And the same thing happens with media. The people at the top who say, we want to create this distraction, or we want to create this bias, or we want to support this type of bigotry, they just decide what to put on our media plate. But, you know, a lot of statistics, if they're presented in a meaningful way by an enthusiastic talking head who's excited to share this new information with everyone, that... I think could be more reassuring, hope-creating, exciting, stimulating yeah. than nine murders in a row over half an hour. Yeah, we do. We have started to see that more with some of the late-night talk shows, the Samantha Bee, the Stephen Colbert, that kind of stuff. I do think there's a division in, in terms of the problem. You have media companies like Fox, uh, like the Wall Street Journal, who are owned by people with a specific viewpoint mm-hmm. that they want to propagate, and those people are not interested in spreading anything that disagrees with that viewpoint. Exactly. And then you have other other media companies that are less politically interested and are more just going for ratings, you know, uh, like your local news programs. And for them, it's just easy. It's easy to get people interested in a murder. It would take more work and more effort to get people interested in the other stuff. Right. They just go with whatever generates the ratings most easily. Yeah, and you know, in general, I don't, I don't see that too terribly frequently with our like local paper here and stuff. But there's, there's a couple of situations where over the last twelve years, there's been something put out in a certain way. And when I check with the people who were behind the decision about when to publish it or or how to write about it, you know, they were clear. They're like, you know, we're doing what we can to 
get people excited when they see the front page, so they're more likely to buy this paper. You know, so so that definite that business side, the money side, definitely comes into play, but not when you're a blogger. Yeah, when you're a blogger, you don't have to deal with any of that. And you have not monetized your blog, have you? I have not. I I could, from what I understand, it would generate some amount of money. Yeah. But I haven't, uh, I, mostly because I, I think that my objectivity would be compromised by mm-hmm. doing it. And because I, I have a plan to have a career that provides me with an income, I'm not desperate enough to do it. Right. I understand a lot of people aren't in that situation, and they would need to monetize it. Mm-hmm. And I don't judge anybody for monetizing their blog. Yeah, no. No, I but wouldn't either. You, yeah, for me, uh, at least so far, I'm in good enough hands financially that I, I haven't felt like I had to do it, so I've avoided it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It's like um, there's that concept out there of peer pressure, and it and the standard form of peer pressure that's promoted as the the kid who walks up and says to the other kid, hey, you should do this, right? And I remember at a young age, oh, I think I was 13, 13, 13, 14, um, I pressured myself into smoking cigarettes for a month because all of my friends happened to smoke cigarettes. And so I wanted to be like them. So I pressured myself, I started smoking. And what's funny is that all of them, without without exception, were telling me, don't do it, don't do it. We started when we were 10 and 11, we're addicted. So I had anti-smoking peer pressure, but I still was pressuring myself. And I think in the same way, what you alluded to is there's two forms of, quote, selling out as a writer. You can go work for someone and accept that they're going to tell you what they want you to write about. They're going to tell you the slant they want, and they're not going to publish you or continue to pay you unless you do what they want. That's like an overt form of top-down. But I think what you were mentioning is the same thing I would be worried about if I were to monetize, is that suddenly you want to write about something that's edgy or might piss some people off or it's, you know, and you think, ooh, but wait a minute, if I do that, maybe I'm going to scare some people off and my, you know. So I, I would not want myself to be inhibited internally, I think, if I were to monetize while writing about uh, potentially, I don't know, how do you, you know, challenging topics. Yeah, it adds to the amount of perverse incentive that you face when you write. And as you start to get popular, that that starts happening anyway. I have already noticed that there are certain kinds of posts that get more hits than other kinds of posts. Right. I've already kind of caught on that if I, I make the headline more provocative, I get I get more hits. If I write about current events rather than broader, more philosophical topics, I get more hits. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you have to constantly be on the lookout for being overly influenced by that. And if I added making money to it, hmm. that would make it even harder to resist. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really, really cool you're, that you recognize that. I imagine a lot of people probably do, but plenty of humans, I think, tend to miss the things that influence them. Uh, whether it's a news program or whether it's their own internal monologue. So, yeah, self-awareness is, is going to serve you well. So let's see here. You sent me um, – I mean, I have – I'm not like a technical follower. I don't think I quite know technically how to even follow someone's blog. But I ran into you a while ago, and ever since, I, I check in on a regular basis just myself. So I've seen already, like – half of these because you have had some really amazing posts over the last um, election year in particular. Um, I haven't gone back to check your archives actually, but you had, let's see here, the most popular post that you had written about the U.S. election, and I do like it, so folks who are listening, we're going to be talking not just about the U.S., but also a little bit about Britain today. I know personally know people who have been really curious about Brexit, so we're going to get into that too. So this one was, Why Bernie versus Hillary Matters More Than People Think. And I was wondering if you would be willing to just start off by reading that first paragraph, and then we can chat a little bit about um, this blog post. Well, sure. The first paragraph goes, 
Lately, the Internet has become full of arguments about the merits and demerits of Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton. Over the past couple weeks, I've been discussing and pondering all the various views about this, and I'm increasingly of the opinion that most of the people engaging in this debate don't really understand what is at stake in the Democratic primary. This is in part because many Americans don't really understand the history of American left-wing politics and don't think about policy issues in a holistic, structural way. So in this post, I want to really dig into what the difference is between Bernie and Hillary and why that difference is extremely important. So, and then under that, you've got two pictures of one of Bernie, one of Hillary. They're both very pleasant pictures, making them both look really good. Um, what I've loved is that you, you, if you disagree with something, you explain it well. You don't do smear tactics and nasty grossness, and that's, like, really refreshing. But why don't we, real quick, for people who are just joining us, um, so I'm talking with Benjamin Studebaker, and you are 24 years old, right? And you're currently working on your Ph.D. at which university? University of Cambridge. Right. And what is the focus of your Ph.D.? It's on inequality and democracy, how rising inequality destabilizes democratic governments. Brilliant. Love it. So that's that. what does it mean when you are working on a Ph.D. and that is your focus? Does that mean like you created that focus yourself and were given approval to pursue that? How does that work out? Well, when I was applying to Ph.D. programs, they ask you what your research interests are. And I, I described it and I gave people writing samples that indicated it, what in general I'm interested in and want to do. And I mentioned in my application individuals in the departments that I applied to that I thought might be interested in what I do and might want to help me with my work. And those people then get a look at your Ph.D. application, and they decide if they are mutually interested in, in what you'd like to do. And generally, you don't get into a Ph.D. program unless somebody affirms, yes, I like that project. I want to help that kid with that project. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I was very fortunate. My supervisor at Cambridge, David Ronson, is really terrific. Okay. All right. So it'll, it's almost like he's your sponsor, but he's called a supervisor? Yeah. yeah. Got it. Awesome. Okay. And how far into the Ph.D. program are you right now? I finished my first year, so I'm going into my second year this year. And how many years are you planning to spend on it? Well, in Britain, they do them relatively quickly because they have fewer courses and more time devoted to thesis writing. Mm -hmm. So generally, they're either three or four years long, depending on the pace that you work at. Uh, So I'm hoping to have it done by the end of the third year. Brilliant. Okay, so now that we've sort of established your viewpoint and focus and all that, um, so this post, is this the one that you got a, wait, this is, is this the one you got a million hits on? Uh, this is the second most popular post. So I think it did around 800,000. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it got on Huffington Post. Huffington Post offered to republish it. I let them do that. Nice. Uh, yeah, and it, it, it was read a lot. Uh, in February, right yeah. around my birthday is when it went popular, which was a nice present. <laughs> okay, so I think I personally think that there's a lot that Americans in general don't understand about how the political system works at all. And it hit me during this past year. I basically was working full time for about the last 15 months on um, Bernie Sanders. Um, the political revolution, just the whole thing. It just basically consumed my life. Everything else got dropped. My family was very supportive. I went to Philadelphia for the DNC. Um, I, you know, there I was sitting in in Denmark at three o'clock in the morning, texting with people about Bernie Sanders, you know, right before the election in California. So, you know, it consumed my life. And one of the things that I realized along the way was that in America, we are taught government, You go take a class in high school, and they teach you how the government functions, the Congress, the White House, blah, blah, blah. I don't remember, at least when I was in school, which was the late 80s, and later when I took a poli-sci class in college, I don't remember ever actually being taught about political parties and how they function. Yeah, parties get left left out a lot, and and not just in terms of the mechanics of how they work, but in terms of how different groups and parties become dominant and how they perpetuate that dominance and under the conditions 
where they're challenged, how they respond. And we don't really get into ideology in a lot of our politics courses because we like to pretend in America that we don't have ideological politics, that our parties are small parties, that they're not all that different from each other, that they can cooperate with each other pretty easily. And there have been times in our history where this has been true, but lately it's less true than it used to be. And a lot of people aren't really clear on how to handle that or how to deal with it or understand it. Well, and I think we're also not clear on the intersection between our government and political parties at all. For example, um, like at some point the government says if you want to get on a ballot, you have to have achieved blank and then they tell that to all the people and all the political parties. And if they're a little political party and you don't achieve that that minimum level, then you can't be on the ballot. And if you're a big party, then you are. But it seems to me almost like it's become not so much law-based, but a little bit more like um, just assumed. It's almost, uh, what do you call that when you have like an incestuous relationship between, you know, um, positions of power or something? And it seems to me like the line is being blurred. Somehow political parties are looking less like political parties to me and they're looking more like functional aspects of the government. And I don't, I don't think they're supposed to be. Uh, it's, it's interesting because we have this first-past-the-post system in the United States. Mm-hmm. Which they also have in Britain where if you run three or four candidates, the one that gets the most votes wins, even if that is just a plurality and not a majority. Mm-hmm. And we don't have a second preference system. Like in some countries, if you vote for a third party and the third party candidate gets third place, then all of the third party candidates' votes are redistributed to those voters' second preference between the two high vote getters. Mm-hmm. And that gives third parties a little bit more of a chance. Is that they the one called, the... is that the runoff? Method? Yeah, yeah, it's like a runoff system. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. Vote. Yeah. If I understand correctly, I think Maryland right now as a state is trying to pass an initiative that would introduce runoff voting. Yeah, there's there's efforts to bring it about. Uh, Britain had a referendum on it a few years ago, which didn't pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the referendum, they made some claims that were pretty dubious about alternative vote. Uh, I didn't think it was very well run. Oh, okay. There, there, there has been an effort to try to shift countries away from that first-past-the-post system to give the third parties more of a chance and move to more of a multi-party system like France has mm-hmm. or Germany. And so, in those countries, the, the minor parties can get 10, 15 percent of the vote, and they'll be represented in a proportional way uh, right. in, in the Congress and the legislature. So, so um, to be more clear for people who are listening, I think we might jump ahead a little bit. So, for example, um, for months and months and months now, um, one of the uh, number one arguments against Bernie Sanders, for example, and for Hillary Clinton has been a fear-based argument, which was related to this the scary boogeyman on the other side of the aisle. And... Um, so people were have been told repetitively for many months, if you vote for the person that you like and you don't vote for the person who has the best chance of beating the scary guy, then we're going to get the scary guy. And that type of fear-based voting, I think it was probably 10 months ago I started saying if someone's asking you to vote based upon fear, then you're being um, herded is the way I try. You're being herded like a person would herd, you know, a bunch of sheep or something, you know. So runoff voting means that a person walks in and they've got a ballot with maybe three names on it and they get to vote first. This is a person I would love to have win. Second, this is the next person I'd be okay with winning. And they can either vote third or I guess skip third if they want. But in that case, what you know is that if you were to vote for the person that you really loved, and maybe it's your neighbor next door named Chuck, who mows his lawn really nicely, and you just think he'd be a great president, you can write Chuck in. But then your second vote could be for the candidate who is like your backup candidate, the one who you think would do a good job if if your favorite person doesn't win. And 
you haven't wasted a vote and you haven't undermined that second candidate. You've just tossed your first vote over here where you in dreamland where you would love to have it happen. But it will come back and be recast if your dream candidate doesn't end up winning. Is that a good way to explain it? Yeah, it's a great way to explain it. Okay. I think Chuck is a cool guy. <laughs> Joking. Don't have a neighbor named Chuck. Okay. So so you're talking here about policy issues and what is it number one thing that you think people were missing about the primary something that people could take forward to the next primary and um and remember next time i think the the big thing that people were missing was that there was a fundamental ideological difference between hillary clinton and bernie sanders Mm -hmm. it wasn't just a matter of these people are relatively similar and they disagree on a small number of things the reason that the establishment, the superdelegates, lined up so heavily behind Clinton and were never going to consider going to Sanders under any circumstances, was that Sanders was a challenge to what was considered important in the Democratic Party, what Democratic Party policy ought to be. And that's why there was this this protracted fight over what would go on the platform. Mm -hmm. Because Bernie Sanders really has an agenda. He wasn't independent. He's been in third parties that is not the Democratic Party's agenda, at least not what it's looked like since the late 70s. Mm-hmm. And that consisted in a very different attitude toward free trade. It consisted in a much more aggressive attitude about climate change, uh, a much more aggressive attitude about uh, expanding entitlement programs, about uh, reducing university costs. And a lot of these things were not on the agenda at all until Bernie Sanders came along and would never have been put on the agenda if he hadn't run as close a race as he did. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, like, for example, TPP, I mean, it's it has seemed to me, I don't, I don't know how much you've been tracking all various different details, but um, uh, an election year is a really great year to sneak a bunch of stuff through the legislature without anyone noticing because you have this massive distraction called a primary and then a, a general election. And um, during the month of July, um, leading up to the DNC, I started checking in with people to ask them if they knew what was going on with the um, Monsanto Protection Act. It's got three or four different monikers, but it's 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 the one that takes away our right at a state level to um, pass laws uh, requiring the labeling of GM genetically modified organisms. So it eliminates our right on the state level, and you know does something on the federal level, which is really not so great. And I won't go into a lot of details, but a lot of people have been worried about this. It's been floating around for the last couple of years and moving forward, year and a half, two years. And so I'd be like, okay, people, do you know what's going on with this right now? Because they're all talking about, you know, Bernie and Hillary, Bernie, blah, 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 blah. And they'd say, oh, well, I don't know. Like, it's a bad thing. I guess eventually it's going to come up for a vote. I'm like, well, it's in the Senate right now. And they're like, oh. And I'm like, have you seen anything on the news about that? And they're like, no. Do you see anything on Facebook about it? No. I'm like, okay. So it's in the Senate. Oh, guess what? Just got passed. Now it's in the House. Oh, guess what? They just passed it. And for a whole month, I was tracking this. I never met a single person who was actually tracking it. People who cared about it, but they were so distracted that they didn't see it at all. And another piece like that seems to be TPP, um, which seems like perhaps the biggest giant dog bone a bunch of corporations are salivating over. I'm wondering what um, your thoughts are on TPP. Yeah, elections suck up all the air in the room. And they create a space for the government to uh, pass things that may be very popular among lawmakers and among lobbyists, but would not necessarily do well under public scrutiny. Mm -hmm. And we're definitely seeing this with TPP because, again, once Bernie Sanders goes out of the race, TPP starts to move to the back burner. It it starts to get talked about less and less. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Hillary Clinton claimed to have moved positions on it, but she was a big proponent of it initially. Mm-hmm. And what I suspect is that if it doesn't get passed under Obama, she will revise it or amend it in some way and then pass it anyway. So she can then claim to have kept the campaign promise 
to not pass it in its current form, but still accomplish her objective of passing it. Right. Uh, and and we're not yeah. just, and, and to be clear for the listeners, we're not saying that she was supportive a little bit, sort of, kind of, maybe last summer. No, this was actually like one of her major projects as Secretary of State. This was what she and Obama created, crafted, and, and grew over a number of years. Yeah, these trade deals take a very long time to negotiate, and she was absolutely involved in it as Secretary of State. The, the quote that you always hear is that she called it the gold standard of trade deals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these trade deals have become very popular because they they do lower the costs of goods and services on the market. You know, if you can have something imported, it's going to be cheaper to buy. But the other side of that is that they often undermine labor laws and create uh, very dangerous wage competition where you're asking people in the United States in rich countries to compete on wages and benefits with workers in developing countries where the unions are non-existent and the labor laws are very lax. Mm-hmm. And that exposes people to a competition that they can't deal with, weakens the strength of labor bargaining in right. this country. And too often they don't really create a mechanism that's very strong to prevent that from happening. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's been really interesting. You know, I live here in Washington State, and TPP Fast Track um, was basically um, ushered through with the um, support of Patty Murray. Um, she gathered like the last. I think I, I read up a bunch on a whole bunch when it was happening, and she gathered like the last final seventeen votes necessary to get it passed. And this was the piece of legislation that allowed. President Obama to be the only representative of the entire country at the table during the negotiations with all of these other countries and and whatnot about TPP. So it's really interesting living in Washington state because in a way we're sort of a microcosm of what's happening um, with the entire country. You know, we've got a, we've got a rural conservative East side of the state. We have a liberal coastal, um, you know, west side of the state, we have immigrant issues, we've got a border with another country, we have a huge military um, uh, base, couple of them set up here, we've got nuclear power, we've got all these issues that the whole country is dealing with, and we've got ports, so now you've got the coal being shipped through and, and all this, and it's like, it's fascinating in a way to realize that the things we're trying to resolve on a national level are right here in front of us in our own state. I almost feel like what might be best would be for the people of Washington to gather together and say, okay, rather than try and fix the country, why don't we first fix our state? You know, like institute proper. Um, do you do you have a blog post at all about um, campaign finance reform? Yeah. Yeah, I've talked about campaign finance a bit on a number of different occasions. Yeah. Seems like a bugaboo for sure. Yeah, yeah. Campaign finance is a is an interesting issue, uh, in in part because a lot of the way that money influences politics is not affected by campaign finance law. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes, campaign finance law is viewed as a bit of a magic bullet, but of course, Citizens United just happened in 2010, right. and most of the rise in inequality that you saw in the country happened before 2010, mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, right. and we, while while it's it's uh, it's a good it's a good proposal and I like it, uh, I'm concerned that it leaves the lobbying untouched. It leaves uh, media conglomerates untouched. Mm-hmm. It leaves uh, think tanks. We have a lot of think tanks that are financed by rich people, and they put out research that is skewed to support a certain set of ideological viewpoints. Mm-hmm. And then news outlets report on it like it's an independent organization. Right. Uh, like Heritage Foundation, Cato. Right. And, you know, very right-wing committed think tanks that are putting stuff out that oftentimes has major methodological issues with it that the journalists in the news organizations often aren't equipped to catch on to. Mm-hmm. And so when they report on it, they don't present the counter-argument, because they're not aware that there is a counter-argument. Well, and we saw getting... we saw the same thing happening with, um, you know, climate change, global warming, you know, environmental changes. It was like, you know, the 
the every time you'd have someone who was being interviewed about these changes, you'd have another person who's saying it's a bunch of poppycock. And so it gave the sense that there was a 50-50 viewpoint in the scientific world around this issue, and it really wasn't the case. But I think some of those things, think tanks, think tanks were also engaged in trying to really discourage people from taking a close look at what we were doing to the environment. And it's easy to create that kind of illusion because there's a lot more money available for research that advances the interests of some subgroup than there is uh, money available for research that's objective and will give you whatever whatever the truth is as, as you can understand it. Right. And, and that so, puts little guys always at a disadvantage when it comes to funding that stuff. And, and a lot of the think tanks were founded uh, with a strategy in mind of surrounding the universities, which during the 60s and 70s had a quite left-wing point of view on a lot of economic issues, mm-hmm. with these think tanks that would have superior outreach, superior connections with the Beltway and with media, uh, and could surround and, and hopefully eventually infiltrate the universities. Well, that's what I was just – well, two things. One, I just glanced down at, at one of the other um, – blog post that you had sent me and we've already covered it but it's so you know so everyone the um title is the election is distracting us from the issues so we jumped straight into that earlier um just so everyone knows you go to benjamin studebaker.com right yep and you spell studebaker like the car yeah okay there we go exactly and um it'll it'll be on the website so if you're listening to this in the car and you're about to hop out and go grocery shopping and can't catch the end of this you can come back catch the end of it later at www.voiceofvashon.org if you want to go straight to my site it's just a backslash and then it's prose poetry and purpose but it's a lot easier just to go to the main page and um, and go ahead and click on it that way under shows. And I just realized I need to actually thank some of our sponsors because we are a nonprofit radio station and we are kept alive by the committed support of island organizations. So why don't we go ahead and give a shout out to John L. Scott for supporting Voice of Ash on programming. Um, thank you so much. Best people and best results. That's what you'll find at John L. Scott. And let's see. Oh, yeah, this is cool. Island Spring Organics. So support for KVSH programming is provided by Island Spring Organics. 40 years of organic, non-GMO soy foods made daily right here on Vashon. Tours are available at islandspringorganics.com or you can call 206-463-9848. I've actually been in there before and I love their tofu. It's really good. All right. So we can close out that one about, yes, these elections do distract us, don't they? Um, why don't we dive into this one because we're going to run out of time. I need to have you back on the show another time. This is great. How about we dive into a little bit about what's going on in Britain and talk about Brexit, uh, Tad, for people who are confused. Okay. So in Britain, they decided to have a referendum on whether Britain would exit the European Union. Uh, This is unusual in Britain because generally in Britain you don't make decisions with referendums. But in recent years, the Cameron government really liked referendums as a way of making big decisions that it didn't want to be seen to take too much responsibility for. So it kind of passed it off to people. They did this with alternative vote. They did it with Scottish independence. And then they did it with Brexit. And in the first two votes, they got what they wanted. But on the third vote, they screwed up. Really? Yeah. And David Cameron had to go out of office because he was considered a a total failure. Among people in Britain who wanted to remain, which is most of the political establishment, Mm -hmm. he would be regarded as perhaps the worst prime minister since Neville Chamberlain. Well, I love the the title right here. uh, let's see. How about you go ahead and read the first paragraph of um, Britain, for the love of God, please stop David Cameron. On May 7th, this Thursday, Britain has a general election. I care deeply about British politics. I did my BA over there and will return to, to my PhD there this fall. But more importantly, David Cameron's government has managed the country's economy with stunning facklessness, and I couldn't live with myself if I didn't do my part to point this out. 
Now, I've read this blog post. It's too long for us to read the whole thing during the show, obviously. But this is, I mean, I've known on the surface austerity measures don't work. But you just really nailed it down with some great resources, data, and graphs and about exactly why austerity measures are counterproductive. Can you go ahead and share that in summary with our listeners? Well, austerity measures, uh, when we have an economic crisis, one of the big problems is that a lot of people lose their jobs or they see their pay get cut. And when that happens, they can't buy as much as they used to buy. So they start buying fewer things. And that hurts businesses. Businesses can't make as much money when people aren't buying things. And it creates a cycle where those businesses respond by laying off people and cutting wages and not giving people raises they otherwise would have gotten. And it produces a vicious cycle mm-hmm. that eats away at consumers' ability to take care of themselves. And so what people start doing uh, is they, they start looking for other ways to get the money. They send someone else to work. You know, maybe their spouse goes into the workforce. Maybe they start borrowing a lot of money through credit card debt or mortgages or student loans or something like that. But eventually they run out of ability to take on debt, and those debt bubbles burst, and they end up worse off, and they're unable to get out of this trap where their consumer power is declining, but there's still inflation, and there's still a need to generate economic growth. And this contradiction in the system produces inevitable problems. Mm -hmm. Government makes it worse when government decides to shrink itself in response, because when government cuts spending, it is then also laying people off, paying people less money, giving people smaller amounts of government benefits, Mm -hmm. all of which is adding to the problem of consumers not being able to support economic growth with their borrowing, with their buying and, and selling. Right. And in Britain, it became very popular to use the size of the government budget debt and deficit to justify round after round of budget cuts. Mm-hmm. And this strangled Britain's economic recovery for several years. Britain was going in and out of recession as late as 2013. Right. It was a real mess. And the government, when people complained about this, kept pointing people's attention away at immigrants and the European Union, and everything else but themselves. Right, of course. working-class people in Britain, instead of believing that their public services were getting worse because cuts had been made to them, believed that uh, it was because there were so many immigrants coming over from Europe and they were overtaxing the public services. Mm -hmm. Instead of believing that there were no jobs because government has been cutting jobs and, and cutting opportunity for people to find money, they were convinced that it was the immigrants who were taking all the jobs. Right. And this set everyone up for a growing opposition to the European Union and to the free movement that brings in immigrants from Europe. Mm-hmm. And to let these, to get these people to let off steam, they decide to have this referendum. And Cameron was kind of caught because he taught his own party membership that it was the European Union's fault, that it was immigrants' fault. Mm -hmm. And they were demanding that he have this referendum. And he had to do it to keep his party together. Right. So the referendum becomes putting party above country. Having a referendum that everyone in government knows they can't risk having uh, a leave vote, but having it anyway because if they don't, the party will revolt. Right. So so they they go through with it and they lose the campaign because it coincides with the refugee crisis. Right. And the refugee crisis takes that anxiety about immigration up a whole other level. And there was very little that the government could do about it. And they scheduled it a couple of years in advance. So they really had no idea what the political climate would be like when it actually happened. Right. It was a big gamble. Uh, Cameron took a huge risk with the country and he didn't pull it off. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and when exactly did they do the vote? Uh, They did the vote uh, earlier this summer. Right, right, right. And so this is after a year of a certain person in the United States of America sitting around and spewing all sorts of bigoted, bashing type of commentary, which 
that that affects the political climate in Britain. I, I think I think it, it's been going on in a lot of different countries. Those kinds of movements in a lot of countries. Mm-hmm. There are really two responses to this economic deprivation. One is the Bernie Sanders thing to say that it's because over time we've allowed the distribution of wealth and power to become uh, overly weighted toward the interests of finance capital. Right. And that's put us in a bind, and we need to restore balance in the relationship between workers and, and employers. And this alternative, which says, oh, it has nothing to do with that. It's because of all the foreign people mm-hmm. and the bad people and the people on welfare. And it's those people. It's the people who have even less than you mm-hmm. who are the problem, not, not the people who control most of the money and the power in the country. Right. You know, it's interesting. It reminds me of, um, and I don't know, Did you saw what I said in my email to you about um, Germany. Did did that ring true for you? Uh, Germany. Before uh, World War II? Oh, oh, before World War II. Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, I make comparisons, uh, and a lot of people are increasingly making comparisons between this period and the 30s, uh, the principal difference being that people are less okay with using violence to solve the problem, thankfully. Mm-hmm. But right. in terms of the kinds of political movements that we're getting, in the 30s we got hard-left movements and we got hard-right movements, uh, both besieging a center that was unwilling to be flexible and unwilling to adapt mm-hmm. to the needs of that time. And when the political establishment doesn't adapt to the needs of the time, when it doesn't change its, its policy platform the way that Franklin Roosevelt in our country did completely change the Democratic Party's policy platform to adapt. Right. Uh, if you don't do that, then radical and revolutionary forces will proliferate, and they will propose things that are way, way out in left or right field. Well, I think it's it's just that it's like – so the thing for me is what a lot of people – may or may not if you ha- I took a couple of classes history was my um my minor in um college and if you don't get a chance to delve in deeply the general impression is oh those bad nazis they were you know racist and they were anti-semitic and they were just bad and greedy whatever and that's like what people are going to take away from movies and casual books you might pick up or something but what people don't always understand is that World War One, the end of World War One, the um, that was the Treaty of Versailles, right? I'm correct yeah, on that. It's yeah. been a while since I've said this, but the Treaty of Versailles really set up the German people for economic failure going forward. It was not well crafted, and so when extreme stress was hitting the German people of an economic level, that was when it was easier for a party to come in and turn around and point at a minority group, you know, and, and start to make scapegoats of the Jewish people in Germany. And they also went after homosexuals and they went after intellectuals and they went after gypsies and a lot of different groups. And so it's just always important, I think, for people. I got this somehow at a young age. I just remember saying to someone when they were talking about how could they, how could they have done that during you know World War II? How could they have been Nazis? And I remember I was I think I was like fifteen. I said, "Look, we're sitting here in America. It's late '80s. Life is flipping great in this country, so we can sit around and say, oh, I would never do that, you know, up on my high horse.' But you lose your house, your kids get kicked out of school, you're hungry. You know, you put human beings in a pressure cooker and you create large amounts of stress." they will go sideways in their behavior. And the people of the world that are going sideways are not bad people. They're under intense pressure. Yeah, and it's one thing if you are being given choices that are different, that are good and decent, but if no one is giving you a choice, if everyone is saying, no, you just have to endure it, and one person is saying, you don't have to endure it, Mm -hmm. and I alone can, can save you, or we alone can save you, Right. Uh, that that's very dangerous, and yeah. it's, it's a problem when we don't have enough variety within our political establishment to propose solutions that can get traction and can move. That's when we start to get this breakdown where people lose confidence in our institutions and they start looking for a Caesar, someone to smash stuff up. Right. Right. 
Well, I, so I want to formally invite you to come back for um, another hour and fairly soon. I love what you said, um, and we haven't been able to talk about it today, but about how Rome, you know, America is like Rome was, you know, the correlations there. And um, and I just want to del- delve into a few more of these wonderful posts that you have. So what do you say? You want to come back for another interview at some point soon? Yeah, I'd be happy to come back at some point soon. This is fun. Yeah, that'd be awesome. All right. So, well, then I'm literally running out of time. I'm going to have to call an end for today. Let me go ahead and make sure everyone who's joined us and wasn't here at the beginning knows that my name's March Twisdale. I am the producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose here on Voice of Vashon. And I have been speaking today with Benjamin Studebaker. Who ha- he's my first guest blogger. He's brilliant. I love his writing. And you can find him at BenjaminStudebaker.com, spelled like the car. Benjamin, thank you so much for making time to get together with me. Well, thanks for having me on. It was really fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really need to get into more of this later. Um, so that's our show. And I'm now going to leave you all with the inspirational and timely song, We Are the Many created by musical activist Makana. Hey, come here and gather around the stage The time has come for us to voice our rage Against the ones who've trapped us in a cage To steal from us the value of our wage From underneath the vestiture of law The lobbyists at Washington do gnaw At liberty the bureaucrats guffaw And until they are purged we won't withdraw We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Our nation was built upon the right of every person to improve their plight The laws of this republic they rewrite And now a few own everything in sight They own it free of liability They own that they are not like you and me Their influence dictates legality And until they are stopped, we are not free We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the offices of you Till you do The bidding of the many, not the few Force your monopolies with guns While sacrificing our daughters and sons But certain things belong to everyone Your thievery has left the people none So take heed of our notice to redress We have little to lose, we must confess Your empty words to leave us unimpressed A growing number join us in protest We occupy the streets, we occupy the courts We occupy the offices of you till you do of the many, not the few.
You can't divide us into sides And from our gaze you cannot hide Denial serves to amplify And our allegiance you can't buy Our government is not for sale The banks do not deserve a bail We will not reward those who fail We will not move till we prevail We'll occupy the streets We'll occupy the courts We'll occupy the others in the Bidding the many, not the few. We'll occupy the streets, we'll occupy the courts, we'll occupy the offices of you till you do. The bidding of the many, not the few. We are the many. You are the few.